thankful, thank you for coming out to the Thursday night Bible study. Uh, we, we've really had Thursday night uh, Bible study or church even before we had Sunday morning church. Remember that? Back in the early days, we were gathering here, sitting over in this little area, a circle of people praying for one another. I don't know if some of you remember this, but we put the little chair, an empty chair in the middle and said, if anybody needs prayer, just come over and have a seat. And we laid hands on them and prayed for them. And that's really the infancy, the beginning of, of Bureau Bible Fellowship. Back then, we weren't even a church, really. We were just folks who were hurting and wanted to minister to one another and uh, gave a little teaching each time we'd gather. And we kept saying, uh, do not invite others to be part of this. <laughs> do not invite anyone to come to this. This is just for time of healing and every week, man, more people. I, Please do not invite anyone else. So some of you were just lousy. You were not obedient. Christians, you were disobedient. <laughs> Maybe you were obedient to God and disobedient to Greg. Maybe that's what it was. Okay, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Well, let's get started in the Word tonight. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And as always, we want to start with prayer. And let's pray for... Uh, there's many things to pray about, isn't there? All, there always is. There's so many things. We could spend the whole evening just praying. In fact, we, we will probably have another solemn assembly at some point here this year where we, we just gather for the sake of prayer. Uh, what we've done in the past is we'll start with adoration, putting God in the rightful place of our hearts and minds as we pray, and then we move into confession, and then we move into thanksgiving, and we end with supplication, lifting up needs, and just make the whole evening about prayer. So we'll, we'll probably do that at least one more time this year, if not a couple times. Uh, tonight, I, wanna, I want us to be praying for our nation. Um, this, this sexual revolution, I don't know what else to call it, except the sexual revolution, has been gaining ground uh, going back you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and it's not slowing down. It's, it's even getting worse. And uh, now we have this, uh, this bill before Congress, uh, the equality bill that they're trying to push, and, and it would be a devastating blow to religious freedom. Um, potentially has the power to uh, cause churches to become, uh, to align in terms of uh, opening up to the LGBTQ demands uh, where there's equality. To them, equality is you do it our way. Mm -hmm. Well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to, even if it's passed in the law, we're not going to disobey the Lord for man. We're not going to give to man what belongs to God. We'll give to man what belongs to man, uh, and that is human dignity and love and respect. Every human being needs that, but we're not going to in somehow cater to the whims of man and the culture of the day. And they call it cancel culture. Well, they can cancel if they want, but the reality is we must be obedient to the word. That's the answer. I was so moved. I forget the gentleman's name. We just, were just introduced to him uh, at church about two weeks ago, three weeks ago when uh, Jessica uh, Pennell got up and shared from the missions committee. We, you know, we have a missions weekend coming, 
And I'm really excited about that. We're going to meet some, some folks who are in missions. We're going to uh, get a chance to hear more about the mission organizations that we support. And our committee's done a fabulous job really lining us up with folks who believe the Bible as we do and are standing, uh, really, they're standing uh, in the gap and making up the hedge all over the nation and world. And this pastor was over in northern India, where I spent time in northern India, but he's from there. And of course, I think Jessica said that uh, in the last, was it last few months, six Christians have been martyred? And his children are in America right now. They're attending college, and they were very concerned for their father's safety because they think he could easily fall into that, that category. And uh, So what was interesting, in his in interview, he said, uh, if, if I am martyred, he told his kids, if I'm martyred, uh, it is not a criminal offense. The Lord ordered it up. It was the way of the Lord for me. Now you think about that. Do, do not go after those who did it. Um, the Lord allowed it. And if you understand what it means to be a Christian, uh, the Greek word is martus, comes from the, what we translate martyr. That we, when you when you surrender to the to the conditions of peace that Jesus offers and you're no longer at enmity with him. You are a candidate. You, at that time, become a candidate for martyrdom. Your life no longer belongs to you, right? It now belongs to Christ. So, so our country, believe me, I'm telling you, it's, we're very much heading down that path. We have been for a long time. It didn't start when, when Joe Biden became president, but it's not slowing down under Joe Biden. It's probably picking up steam. And so we just need to really be in prayer, and let's also pray that we will be the kind of Christians that will stand when, when the time comes. And believe me, I think many churches will, will fall. They will they'll cater to what's being put upon them. We, we must not give to, to man what belongs to God, and our lives belong to Him, right? Amen? Father, uh, we don't at this time fear death in America, um, but our brothers and sisters around the globe do. In this day, they, figure, they, they, they have the possibility of becoming martyrs for Christ. Yet we will have our own persecution. We already have it in many respects, but it will it'll even become greater as time goes. That's what the scripture teaches us. It's the downgrade of man. You cannot be handed over to a, a reprobate mind where you no longer understand how to judge rightly. You no longer, right is now wrong, wrong is right. You no longer think right. You can't go there as a nation and not run into conflict with those who believe the Word of God. So Lord, we pray for strength, we pray for endurance, we pray for faithfulness, we pray, Lord, that you would use us in this day. As bad as things are, it just shows the profound difference between light and darkness. It's the most wonderful time to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The darker it gets, the greater the light shines and dispels, and it just the contrast. And So, Lord, uh, use us. 
but may we know the Word of God. May we study the Word so that we're able to not only, uh, not only stand on truth, but we can fight off the wiles of the enemy and, and help others, bring others into the truth. So tonight, may, make this a profitable time. It's not just for coming to church because the doors are open. and It's not just gaining knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's, it's, it's being conformed to the image of Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit. Let that happen tonight in each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's get started. This is exciting. Uh, we are in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. And just quickly in review, last week we left off where God chose Saul to be the king of Israel. He instructed Samuel to anoint Saul as king. And when Samuel told Saul that all of Israel desired him, uh, that was in the initial conversation. All of his, why would all of Israel desire you? And immediately Saul began to realize, oh my goodness, he's talking about me being king. And immediately, Saul responds in chapter 9, if you want to go back to last week, chapter 9, verse 21, look at Saul's response to this. He said, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Now, again, we, we made the point last week that he comes from a wealthy family, so uh, some of it is, is just not accurate what he's drawing up, but I think Saul's speaking more broadly regarding the tribe of Benjamin as it sits with the other 11 tribes. Benjamin was the least. If you know the story on that, and we'll look at it here, uh, you begin to see the, the, something about God, how God uses people that He chooses regardless of their background regardless of whatever small beginnings they came from. You, you can say like Saul, who's saying to Samuel, I, what are you talking about? I'm from a little people, a little tribe, and we're insignificant. Why would God choose the king out of this tribe? And some of us give the same kind of a response when God comes knocking on our door and saying, I've called you to be a witness for Christ. Oh, no, I, don't, I can't speak like, uh, like Harry here. Harry goes out every day and shares Christ. Yes, you, you know, you won't speak like Harry, but you're called to the same ministry as Harry. Every Christian is called to be a witness for Christ, right? Every Christian is called to pray. Every Christian is called to study the Word of God. Every Christian is called to disciple someone. Find somebody who knows less than you and start pouring what you know into them. And then you keep coming to Bible study or attending Bible study so that you can grow and keep growing, and then you keep passing that on. Now you're bringing somebody along with you. That's what Jesus talked about when He said, go into the world, preach the gospel. You want to see people get saved. And then when they're saved, don't just walk away with a, you know, woo, they're saved, that's it. No, that's not it. That's just the beginning. The door was open for salvation. They received the gospel. But now God wants them to be discipled. He says, then teach them everything that I've commanded you. That's what we're all to be about, right? And so you say, but, my, my be but who am I? You know, there's preachers, there's, you know, the Franklin Grahams. Who am I? Well, you can be from the least people in the most insignificant part of the country and be the exact person God wants to raise up and use. 
That's how our God works. And that's what's happening here. Saul can't believe that God would choose him of all people coming from the tribe of Benjamin. Let me just share a little bit about the tribe of Benjamin. We know that of Jacob's 12 sons, Benjamin was the youngest, and he received the last blessing from his father. Now, this is interesting. It gives you a little insight into, because this is a prophetic, this blessing is prophetic. What Jacob is going to speak over his youngest son about that tribe, it absolutely came true, every bit of it. So here's what he says. If you want to know where it's found, uh, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 27. This is what Jacob said of Benjamin when he blessed him. He said, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. He's a ravenous wolf. In the morning he goes out and devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. Now, that is speaking of two different time periods in the, in the uh, history of Benjamin. In the morning, early on, as a tribe, the tribe of Benjamin got caught up into idol worship, something terrible. They, they were so caught up into the sexual revolution of the nations around them. It was so bad that they had their own Sodom and Gomorrah experience. And they were so wicked that they sent the man of the house, his wife, out for the, those who were wanting to have uh, unnatural sex with the man in the house. They sent the wife out. And guess what happened to her? They raped her. They left her for dead. She was found in the morning, had crawled back to the doorstep and died. And so the other tribes, Israel came after Benjamin. They went to this town in Benjamin and they said, we need the men who did this. And the response was, uh, no, you can't have them. You either hand them over or we'll take out all of you. Now, this is a civil war. This is one of the tribes fighting with the other tribes. You know what they chose? They chose to protect the guilty who had unnatural sex with, with people and allow the nations, their, 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 their other nations, to, uh, uh, tribes of, of Israel, to come after them. And they had a huge battle. And in the battle, the first two days, because remember what it said here, Jacob said, uh, they are uh, they're ravenous wolves. The tribe of Benjamin was small, but man, they were mean in battle. They were like wolverines. You put a sword in the hand of a Benjaminite, and you got a problem. And they took on all of Israel. Israel showed up with 400,000 soldiers. Benjamin had 26,000. After day one and two, 40,000 Israelites were killed. And they went back and began to pray and seek God, and God said on the third day, you're going to take Benjamin. And sure enough, 25,000 of the soldiers of, of the tribe of Benjamin were taken out. There were 26,000 in that battle. So they were completely wiped out. And this is a nation that went into a, uh, or this is a tribe that actually experienced all this was happening in the book of Judges when 
Even Israel was wicked. But, but Benjamin was far more wicked. And, and so there was this breaking, this, this humbling of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what's interesting that's worth sharing with you is that uh, these are the kinds of people that God chooses. It's interesting. Even out of the tribe of Benjamin, there are really four great people that God raised up. Saul was not the first one. The first one was uh, Ehud. Remember that? In, the, in, the, in our study of the uh, book of Judges, uh, he was the first, Ehud, a great warrior who delivered uh, Israel from the Moabites. God raised him up as one of the judges, and he, was a, he took him to battle, and he won the battle for him. And then the second uh, of the four in, ben, in the Benjaminite tribe was Saul, King Saul. Saul was known as a great warrior, and Saul really gave Israel for the first time, well, close to the first time, the upper hand on the Philistines, who were from the isle uh, off, of, off of the coast of Greece. They had the training of the Grecians, and they had the ironworks of the Grecians. They always had the upper hand on Israel. But Saul really leveled the playing field with the Philistines, which is pretty, pretty awesome. And then the third one is a woman who came out of the tribe of Benjamin, and that was Esther. Remember Esther and Mordecai and how they fought off Haman? And he wanted to literally annihilate the Israelites completely. Down, further down the line, that's exactly what would have happened. And God came in and used Esther and Mordecai and literally saved his people. And the last person uh, would have been, here it is, a, a Benjaminite. Anybody want to guess? New Testament, yes. The Apostle Paul. Way to go. All right, Jody. Uh, the Apostle Paul. And so he even claimed that, you know, that he was a, of the tribe of Benjamin. So this is a small people who you would think are insignificant. You know, they've made some terrible mistakes. Why would God choose out of that tribe to bring the first king to Israel? Well, um, there's a lot to that answer. Some of it is that God is actually chastening the people of God for wanting a king, so he gave them somebody that they thought would be a great king, not who he thought. And uh, at the same time, he is God's choice. And had he obeyed God as he should, I really think it would have worked. But God knew he wouldn't. And this was how God was going to use Saul to really teach Israel uh, some lessons about trusting him and not always looking for what you think is the best option. I, I always try to say to young people when I have an opportunity to speak to them, I love saying to them, and I mean it with all my heart, uh, don't ever take the easy route in life. If, there's a, if you've got the fork in the road and there's one option and it's to go this way and that's easy, or you can go this way and it's going to be harder on you, it's going to cost you more, it's, gonna be, it's just going to be a difficult path. If, if God's opening both doors, take the harder one. Because if you take the harder one, it'll force you to trust God and you'll see things that God does in that, that you wouldn't see if you took the easy route where you're kind of relying on your own strength and not trusting the Lord. And that's the beauty of it. I remember, Dad, you don't remember this. When I, uh, when I was a, 
a, a young uh, youth pastor in Daytona Beach in my home congregation. And God called Rini and I to go down to Palm Beach Gardens and, and, and go to a church in Palm Beach Gardens, where, by the way, Scott Walker was one of the teenagers in that church when we showed up. Uh, Scott's now the chairman of our elder board here. Isn't that kind of neat how the Lord does that? But, uh, uh, I, you know, I was making hardly anything. And now we're going to Palm Beach County, a little, a little uh, upgrade economically from Daytona Beach, Volusia County. And my salary was going to be the same as I was making in Volusia County. You know what my salary was? Before I was married, uh, I was single, a youth pastor, $17,000. And I got, was getting married in December, and Gardens called and said, we just feel God's leading us to come to you and ask if you'd pray about, and that was one of the options. And they said, we really, it's a smaller church, you know, we, so we can, we can match your salary. So here I am on a single pastor's $17,000 salary, and now I've got a wife. We're getting married before we, right before we moved down there. And for the first year, we lived on that $17,000 salary. I rode a bicycle to work every day. <laughs> you know, Greeny took the car, the one car that we had. And, and, but see, that was not the easy way. I remember back that day, I was like up in arms. Oh, my goodness, we're going to have to pay $389 a month to rent this apartment. <laughs> now, some of you could blow that number away from when you were young, you know, and it was a lot less than that. And, but see, we trusted the Lord. We trusted God, and we, we were able to see God do wonderful things. And we, it's, like, it's like when you take the tougher route and you trust God, now he gives you a front row seat to see things that some people only hear about because they're not willing to take the, the tough path. They're not willing to walk in faith, and they never get to see it for themselves, what God does and how God moves when we trust Him. And believe me, we made a lot of mistakes. It wasn't all obedience. Uh, there were times we, we just made the wrong decisions, and we suffered for that. But that's wonderful, too. That's what's happening here. God is allowing Israel to make a wrong choice. They wanted a king. He said, I'm your king. Oh, you really think that a human king is better than me? Okay, I'll give you what you want. In fact, I'm gonna, I am going to give you exactly what you want. Because you told me that you want to be like the other nations. So you want a king that looks good to the nations. So God goes out and finds Saul, who is head and shoulders above every other Jew. Saul, who is handsome. He's tall and he's handsome. Saul comes from a warrior tribe. And all the people were like, Woo! We finally got what we need. Oh my. Were there lessons to learn and we're going to study here. So let's get back to it. I just wanted to, if we could for just a second, uh, talk about how God uses people from the most, you know, non-assuming places. You just wouldn't expect to find God's choice 
as a, as from the tribe of Benjamin when you've got these other tribes that are so much bigger and greater. And, and, uh, but that's, that's how the Lord works. So verse 1, Then Samuel took the flask of oil, chapter 10. Samuel took the flask of oil, and he poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? So let me just bring you up to speed so the context is very important. This young Benjaminite named Saul was told that he would be the first king of Israel. Right after that, Samuel, the, pre, or the prophet rather, invites him to a meal that evening in the city. This is in the region of Zuf, or Zaph, which is located in the Benjaminite region. At dinner, Saul seats, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel seats Saul right next to him. That alone would tell everybody in the room, this young man is being honored. Something's going on here. Then, as the food was being served, Samuel instructed the, the chef or the waiter, please bring the best portion. As I told you before, bring it before him. And so, in any Jewish home, there was always a best portion. You know, there's, 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 there's hamburger meat, and then there's filet mignon, you know? And you, they would always, the, the head of the home would select who would receive the best portion. And so Samuel is saying, I want the best portion to go to this young man. And so he's sitting there with, with Samuel. They have time together. They share. And then Samuel takes him to a home where he's taken up to the roof. And, you know, the roofs back then were flat, and they would have, you know, beautiful patios and things on the roof. Well, there was a bed that was made for him up on the roof, so he put him, go upstairs, go to sleep, get some sleep, and I'll see you in the morning, and then I'll tell you everything that's going to happen. And so uh, Saul is awakened at sunup, which he's a young man, so he doesn't even, he's never been up at sunup probably. You know, that's a new thing. How many of you have or uh, been around grandkids or kids uh, when they're young? You know, they sleep till when? Noon, okay? They have no clue what 8 a.m. looks like or 7 a.m., certainly not 6 a.m. And, uh, but he calls him, get up, you got to leave and go back home. Before you do, I want to share some things with you. And he basically lays out what it means to be the king for Israel, as God has instructed Samuel. And so we come to verse 1, and then before he leaves, Samuel takes out a flask of oil. This would have been a special type of oil. This was not the oil they were using to cook with. This oil probably had a fragrance to it, added to it. It was used specifically for the anointing of vessels of God, human vessels for spiritual use. So this was the same type of oil they would have used when they anointed the high priest or the priest to serve God. And now we see that it's being used to anoint the first king. From this point forward, it will not be used to anoint uh, the priest again. It'll be used only for kings. Okay? So that's a significant event too in the life of what's happening. So he anoints him with oil. And, uh, and, says, and gives him a kiss, and he says to him, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? I love that. What is God's inheritance? You think he's talking about the cattle on the thousand hills? You think he's talking about the land? Do you think he's talking about the gold and the silver? Uh, he is not. He's actually thinking about you, his people. God is saying to this young man who's going to be king, 
I'm going to let you be my steward over my greatest inheritance, which is the people, the chosen, the holy, and the dearly loved called Israel. Now, well, you, you, you talk about a sobering moment. That would be a sobering moment. And, and the significance of this anointing is much bigger than just pouring oil on someone's head. This is a picture of what God was doing in Saul spiritually. We already talked about this last week. Saul was not a spiritual person. He, was not a, he wasn't even a religious person. Okay, uh, Believe me, Benjamin, the Benjaminites were not known for, for being close to God. But he, I'm not saying he was a bad guy, but he just was unfamiliar with the ways of God. He didn't even think about uh, you know, seeing uh, Samuel. Uh, it was his servant who suggested, let's go to this man of God. He is able to tell us things that we don't know. And so, okay, let's go. And should we bring something to give him? You know, I mean, what's the deal? I've not been a, spent a lot of time around these, these uh, prophets and, and priests and things. That's, that was Saul, really not familiar with it. When, you, when I tell you that God chose somebody that didn't look the part, didn't come from the pedigree that you would expect for royalty, I mean, really, this is a stretch. And, but then put it in perspective to you. Who are we? We're, we're always saying, well, he could do it better than I could. She could do it better. We always put ourselves down. We're just like Saul. And yet God didn't call them. He called us. Amen? Every one of us here. He's called us. So this is interesting. So the Holy Spirit... Uh, what this is a picture of, this is a spiritual picture, is a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out on Saul, which equips him for the job of ruling as king over Israel. See, as Christians under the new covenant, we too have an anointing. And this is where things get really interesting because uh, John spoke to believers about how there are many antichrists in the last days many false prophets in the last days. And then listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. I think we're in a day now where we're going to see that same thing happen because it's, we're further along down that path of a downgrade. Of man. And so you're going to see churches that kind of fall away from the truth of God's word because they're not really with us. They've never been with us. They've appeared to be with us, but their hearts revealed when the pressure's on. And, and that's what he's saying. And then he says this in verse 20, uh, what John says, and he's speaking to believers here. He says, but you have an anointing of the Holy One. He wasn't being specific to a person. He wasn't speaking to a collective group of spiritual leaders. He wasn't speaking to the elders of the churches in the neighboring cities. He's speaking to the believers in a letter. Christians. He's saying, you have been anointed of the Holy One. And, and I think that's the biggest misnomer for Christians, one of the biggest ones today. Most Christians, you know, we hear this lingo a lot. It, it comes out of certain circles. And it, it, it's, it's this idea, we'll say, oh, he is anointed. 
Oh, she's so anointed. When she prays, I'm telling you, it's anointed. And we, it, it kind of builds in us this idea that only certain people have the anointing. And in the Old Testament, it is true that the Holy Spirit wasn't living in the hearts of the believers at that time. There was an actual Holy Spirit coming upon those who were going to be used of God in acts of service, like Saul. That happened. But we're not living in the Old Testament. What, what does it mean when we say that somebody is anointed? It means that the Holy Spirit is in them. When did the Holy Spirit come into the believer? At new birth. At the split second that they are regenerated by God, the Holy Spirit comes in. You have already been anointed. You don't wait for an anointing. You are anointed. The Holy Spirit's in you right now. And so if you really see somebody in our day and you are tempted to say, man, what an anointing. What you're really saying is they really have surrendered to the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. You cannot say they have some special anointing that you don't have. They have the same anointing you have. The difference is they're obeying the Holy Spirit. God, they're allowing God to use them as a vessel for His purpose. That's the only difference. It's, no, it's an indictment for us to think that somebody has this anointing and we don't have it. What you're basically saying is, I don't have the Holy Spirit in me. You just said you're not saved. Is that true? No, it's not true. You are saved. Therefore, the Spirit's in you too. The question is, are you obeying the Spirit? Look, what does it say in Romans 8, 28, or 29 and 30? He says that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. How? By the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that's working in us. Now, in the Old Testament, that's a whole different dispensation. The church has not started yet. Christ has not died on the cross. Our sins have not been forgiven. They're under the law. They have to bring animal sacrifice for the covering of, of, their, of their sin. Uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin, so you've got to bring an animal and have it sacrificed. Uh, but there were those that God raised up in unique situations like the judges, like, like high priests, like prophets, and many of them are anointed, special, oil poured over. Listen, he didn't receive the, the, the Holy Spirit when the oil was put on him. Don't think of it being that literal that the Holy Spirit's in this flask of oil that Samuel has, and as soon as he pours it out, now the Spirit's on him. No, it's a picture of what God's about to do to Saul. God is about, through this picture, this is what it's going to be, Saul. God is going to make you a vessel for spiritual use over the nation of Israel. And you're going to see tonight when the Holy Spirit actually does come over him. Okay, so we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit here in just a moment, but let's keep moving for the sake of the, of the narrative in this story, and let's, uh, let's get the idea of what's happening. It says that S Samuel kissed Saul. 
That, that would not have been a kiss of greeting, obviously. He just spent the evening with him, and now this morning he gets back up. It's not a greeting kiss. He's actually giving a sign of support to Saul. It's the, it's the prophet saying, this, what's happening, is of God. And I'm, I'm supportive of what God is doing by making you king. So it's a supportive kiss. It's, I'm, I want you to know that I'm not against you. I am here to help you. You are God's man. Again, putting a great deal of, of heaviness on Saul, you know, wow. Uh, it's a sobering moment. So the question that needs an answer is, why did Samuel anoint Saul in secret? Because now remember, they had a dinner the night before. They had guests around the table. And then this morning they get up. Saul's about to leave, and Samuel's giving him some final words, what to do and what's going to happen. I mean, remember, Samuel's a prophet, so he's going to tell him some things that he needs to know and he's, he needs to obey. And before he sends him off, he anoints him privately, quietly. Well, the answer is apparent because he wasn't, God wasn't ready to reveal Saul as the king. Saul has just learned that he's the king, but God's not ready to pronounce that yet. So this picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon this king so that he can serve the purposes of God has happened privately. Okay, As Christians, our salvation and the anointing, the filling of the Spirit that happens when we're saved, listen, that in most cases happens in a private setting. Uh, and and that's, I think it's good that way. I, I don't, I don't, I've never been one to, uh, I, I certainly don't want to push or per persuade people in a public setting to do something to show us that they are receiving Christ. Now, that, when I, what I just said goes against everything you and I have been taught going all the way back to the Billy Graham Crusades, where at the close, they sing just as I am, and people flood down to the front. And with euphoria, we all get excited about it. Amen? And people in that setting truly get saved. I believe, I don't think everybody, I don't think they all got saved. Uh, certainly, there were probably some who were doing it, you know, some guy went with a girl, she invited him, and he wants to look right for her, so he goes down front. That's possible, right? That could have happened. But, but that was the way it was, is there's, a, there's some kind of a, of a manifestation that you see this person changed or transformed. That's a, it, when it happens and it's of God, it's good. But we can also lead many people into a false salvation if they think, well, if I just walk down front to an altar, I'll be saved. Where I really came under a tremendous amount of conviction and began to do a lot of biblical study on this is when I had people coming to me and saying, Pastor, I know I'm saved because you prayed for me after the service one Sunday. You invited people to come forward. I came forward. You gave a prayer. I repeated the prayer. I know I'm saved because you prayed. That doesn't save you. My prayer for you? That's not your salvation. And so oftentimes what happens biblically and, and in modern day, is that as the Word of God is being proclaimed, 
People can't receive the gospel if they haven't heard the word of God, if they haven't heard the gospel. But when they hear it and the Holy Spirit uses that to convict them of their sin and they repent and they believe upon Jesus Christ, that happens long before Billy Graham said, why don't you come forward? They got saved the second that they, that they in their mind said, I'm repenting. I'm giving over to God. That's when they got saved. Most people didn't see that moment. We were looking down front, waiting for them to, sh how many will show up down here? Not knowing that before they ever got there, all these popcorn salvations are going all over that auditorium. People are getting saved. Now, I'm not talking about that after you're saved, we should have a public profession of our faith. Amen? Bible says that, that, that we should, it should be public that we're saved. Don't hold that in private. But the actual step of salvation where the Spirit comes into you, that probably happened before you did something, before you lifted your hand, before you walked to the altar, before you, whatever it was that you think you had to do, let somebody pray a prayer with you. Believe me, the prayer didn't save you. The hand raised didn't save you. The walk down front didn't say, you already, you got it. You got it. Now, does that mean that people can't get saved at the front? No, it does not. They sure can. People can get raised through the raising of a hand because as they raised it, they surrendered. Okay? As people pray for someone, people can get saved. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that those things are always wrong. I'm just saying that when you put your emphasis on that, it's easy for people to use it as a reason for salvation, and they never really got saved. You follow me? All right, let's move on. We've kind of killed that. We've ridden that horse, and he's been dead for several minutes here. Uh, as Christians, our salvation and the anointing is a very private moment with God. Okay? Some people get saved in a private setting alone. Others get saved in a crowd with people. But the actual salvation is not between you and the people. It's between you and God. Amen? Uh, we see this illustrated with Peter and John who healed the lame man and ended up facing the Jerusalem council because of it. Take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 4. I want you to, let's just, let's just take a moment here and really try to, try to chew this, this piece of truth that, that comes out of the 1 Samuel 10 passage. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John healed this man who uh, was lame at the temple gate. And the man gets up, runs, and jumping, and hollering, hollering, and hooting, and whatever. And people see this guy, they recognize, wait a minute, you can't walk. Yes, he can. He can jump. He can run. And now that stirs up, and then the Pharisees hear about it, and the scribes, they go report it to the leaders, the religious leaders, and now all of a sudden, they come and they take Peter and John, they capture them, put them in prison. The next day, they take them before the Jerusalem council. They've got to explain themselves and all that's going on. And they're trying to trap them so that they can, you know, put them to death probably. But anyway, so here's what happens. This is interesting. So on the next day, verse 5, we're talking Acts chapter 4. 
Their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. So you've got the Pharisees and the scribes, you've got some Sadducees, no doubt, and you've also got the, the priest. So the, these, this is the council of Jerusalem. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Can you imagine pointing somebody, by what power, by what name have you caused this lame man to get up and walk? Okay, forget about celebrating that a lame man can walk. Okay, we want to bury you under this. And of course, you know what happens here. Uh, Peter, here it is, filled with the Holy Spirit. He didn't get filled in the moment. He was filled when he believed. Amen? Okay. He's just one of us. He's a fisherman from, from Galilee. Okay, nobody. And he said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, speaking of Christ, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved." Now, as they observed, here it is. This is, what is the benefit of the infilling of the Spirit? What is the benefit of being under the anointing of God? And all of us are anointed. So what's the benefit? What's the outcome? What's the, what's the result of that? Here it is. As they observed the, what? Confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. Those two thoughts don't go together. If you're untrained, uneducated, the last thing you have is confidence to stand before the Jewish religious leaders who know the Old Testament inside and out. They are marveling that these untrained, uneducated men are speaking under a confidence. It's not a, listen, has nothing to do with self-confidence. How could they help self-confidence? They, they didn't get educated. They're talking to a bunch of educated people. It is God confidence that these men have. What is the benefit of the Holy Spirit living in you? And when you go out and minister in the name of Jesus and you minister under the anointing of the Spirit, what you take with you is a confidence of God that you are not alone as you minister. You say, I don't have a clue what I'll say. When you get there, God will give you the words. He will speak through you when you're in the moment that you need to speak. Until then, if you sit back and say, well, I, I'm not going to go if I don't know what I'm going to say. What did, you just, what did you just say? Let me tell you what you said. I don't have self-confidence. If I don't know what I'm going to say, I can't go and speak. You're, you're relying on your self-confidence. No, it's not about your self-confidence. You're relying on God's confidence.
in you. And so you just put yourself out there. And as you're out there, God begins to do things in your heart and in your mind and in that setting that would have never happened if you hadn't been out there. That's what I'm talking about. We put ourselves in the, in the avenue of God's work. I'm not talking about weird spiritual things. I'm not talking about manifestations and signs and wonders. I'm talking about the ability to go somewhere where you normally would never say something about Jesus, and you go and you just open up and say what the Lord's put in your mouth. You'd say it humbly. You say it with a great deal of sincerity, and, and, and God uses it. And you're like, what just happened? I had no clue what I was doing, but the Lord used that. Yeah, you know why? Because you put yourself in God's traffic, in His flow of traffic, where He works by the Holy Spirit. You are being used of the Spirit of God. And so look what it says. They observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize, here's what they saw. This is where the confidence came from as having been with Jesus. What is the difference? What makes the difference between a person who knows the Word and does nothing with it? They don't share it with anybody. And a person who knows a little bit of the Word and they share it with everybody. The difference is the latter is relying upon God, not self. And they just put themselves out there in the flow of God's traffic and let God do whatever He's going to do. And in that, and here's the other difference, you can know the Word, but that doesn't mean that you have intimate relationship with Jesus. These men were observed as having been with Jesus, meaning these men had a relationship with Jesus. They had a confidence because of that relationship. They knew that they were not alone. Not only did they spend time with Him, not only were they educated under His tutelage, but these men, they knew what to do in that moment because they'd been with Jesus. See, that's the difference. Don't study for the sake of knowledge. Study for the sake of love. I'm in a loving relationship with Christ. So now, I mean, you think about it. See, we get that all wrong. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That knowledge is more than just information. That knowledge is about intimacy. I know Him. That's the knowledge I have. I know Him. You know, in the Old Testament, they'd say that, uh, that a man uh, knew his wife. It was speaking of the sexual, the physical relationship, right? He knew his wife. didn't mean he knew her name. He knew what she looked like. He knew what she smelled like when he walked by. No, it's not talking about information. It's talking about love. He knew her. He had intimacy with her. That's what it means for a Christian who's growing in the knowledge of Jesus. We, or our relationship, our intimate relationship is going deeper all the time. And the deeper it goes, the more easy it is to have faith, to believe that if I'm out there sharing, He's going to help me. He's going to be with me. I'm not going to be alone. 
and God moves in a mighty way. Praise God for that. Such was the case for Aaron. This is interesting. You know, this whole idea, this, you know, uh, Saul being being uh, anointed with oil. Again, that's not when the Spirit came over. It was a picture of that. And what was the picture that, that, that Samuel drew as he poured the oil on Saul? He didn't take a little oil and, and do this on Saul's forehead. He had a flask, it said. He took it. He poured it on him. That is a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit in the Greek preposition, ippi meaning to come upon. Jesus quoted the Old Testament that was written about Him when He said, For the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all that are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The Holy Spirit was upon Him. The picture is oil being poured over Saul. It's coming. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, Saul. What happens when you pour, if that pitcher was nothing but oil, and you poured that over my head? Well, one thing that happens is I'll go home with oily hair. <laughs> but, but more than that, it just keeps coming out, and it keeps flowing until I'm completely covered in oil. It doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop pouring just because I'm covered. It keeps pouring. The word ippy isn't talking about an infilling. It's talking about an, an over, upon experience. It keeps pouring. Why? Because now it hits the floor. And where does it go from there? It goes out from us as the oil of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit keeps pouring out and over us, and He begins to take over everything in our path. You see, that's what it means to be in intimate relationship with Christ. That's what it means to have the anointing of the Spirit, that I allow the Holy Spirit access to do whatever He wants to do in my life, and I let Him flow over me and then out from me. And anybody that's in my path, anybody that walks in my wake, they're going to experience the life of the Spirit. They're going to see it in me. It's not me. It's the Spirit in me. Amen? You see that? That's what's happening here. It's similar. I mean, his experience was very common, by the way, when they would anoint the high priest. When Aaron was anointed as the high priest, Moses, you know, uh, they, they anoint him, and in, in Psalm 133, verse 2, it says, It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It didn't just cover his head. It covered his beard. It covered his robe. That's, that's the picture of what the Spirit longs to do in our lives every day. What a beautiful picture. Amen? You should rise in the morning and not say, Lord, fill me. You're already filled. You've been saved. You can't get any... Look, is there really anything greater than knowing that you have been filled by God to the point, to the measure that now you're saved for eternity? And now you're a vessel that God can use for the rest of your earthly existence? That's awesome. But, but say, Lord... 
just keep filling, keep flowing. Today, let it be a new day with more oil poured all over me. I want more of the Spirit every day. I want to be used of you. Amen? Amen. Look, if you have a pitcher and you have water, I'm sorry, Erlene, i got to make a mess. Is this thing waterproof? We're going to find out. <laughs> so that's, this is you. And, and you're, you're empty spiritually. When, before you get saved, your, your spirit is unregenerate. It's like it's dead. But the second that you're saved, and you're like, oh, this is awesome. My sins are forgiven. The Lord is so good. Uh, wait, Lord, wait, slow down. Look, that's enough, Lord. Stop now, stop, stop. That's no. Every day for the rest of your life, this is what he's desiring to do. This is the Holy Spirit coming upon you. And everything around you is getting wet. Isn't that awesome? That is the picture. That is the biblical picture, and I did make a mess. Amen. Okay. I'll set it right here. That is the picture of the Spirit at work in the life of a believer, being conformed to the image of Jesus. Take your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8 real quick. We just have to hit this, and then we'll keep moving. I love how the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. And the New Testament is a wonderful thing because it makes clear what was concealed in the Old Testament. And so in the book of Romans, and let's just go over to chapter, chapter 8, and let's go down if we can to verse 28. It says, for those whom he foreknew, and he did know you before the foundation of the world, so he knew you long before you were, an, you know, you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye. Um, for, whom, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. You get the idea that any Christian's left out of a calling? If, you're, if he foreknew you and he predestined you, he's called you. And those whom he has called, he also justified. Doesn't matter what sins you've committed in the past. Doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. And whom, those whom he has justified, he also glorified. We won't see that glorification until we get to heaven. But this is the work of God by the Spirit in us. It's a beautiful thing. I hope and pray that tonight somehow you'll be challenged to allow the Holy Spirit to come upon you and you won't resist it. You'll yield to it and go with whatever He tells you to do and when He tells you to do it and watch what happens. And sometimes you'll be rejected. Watch what happens. Because even those that reject you, sometimes they'll come back to you later. And they'll receive from you. So that's the work of the Spirit.
Let's keep moving. Verse 1. We've only gone through half of verse 1. Deb's back there going, how will he ever get through this tonight? Okay. She's probably not the only one wondering that, is she? Okay. Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? Samuel reminded Saul that Israel belonged to the Lord and that they were his inheritance. Saul is being given the role of a steward of his master's inheritance. Again, we talked about that. Verse 2, when you go from me today, then you will find now all of a sudden, because he has told him he's going to be king, now the prophet of God gives him specific things that are going to happen so that it would confirm. If these things happen exactly as the prophet says it, that tells me that I really am called to be the king. This is God giving Saul confidence to believe what Samuel is saying. And so he said, it says here that uh, when you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, look how specific, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you saying, what shall I do about my son? Well, that's some pretty serious stuff there. By telling Saul that he would specifically find two men by Rachel's tomb, these two men will tell him that the donkeys have been found. These two men will tell him that his father is, has a concern for his whereabouts. Uh, these are prophetic signs given by the man of God to Saul to strengthen his confidence that God is actually calling him. And that's what the Lord does. When He calls you to anything... He will strengthen you in it. He'll send people to you who will affirm the calling that He's put on you. Now, if you desire a particular calling that God hasn't given you, uh, and you think that you're called to it, but nobody's coming up and saying, Brother, I'm telling you, the Lord is using you in this. If you're not hearing that, then maybe that's God trying to wave the red flag and say, Hey, dude, you're missing it here. It's like the old boy... He was a farmer from Ohio, and his daddy was out there in the field with him, and the boy was plowing, and all of a sudden, he laid down the plow, walked over to his dad and said, Dad, the Lord just spoke to me. I looked up at the sky and the clouds, and the clouds said, G-P-C, go preach Christ. And his dad looked at him. And he looked up at the sky, and he said, Son, that is not go preach Christ. That's go plow corn. <laughs> Amen. And uh, sometimes uh, that's, that's the sign you need. Sometimes, uh, but the Lord's in it. And this, in this case, God's in it. So, uh, the point is God gives us confirmations along the way. Verse 3, then you will go on further from there, and you'll... You'll come as far as the oak of Tabor. Now he's being specific about oak trees. And there are three, there are three men going, or who are going, to, uh, going up to God at Bethel, meaning that they are going to worship God at Bethel. Bethel was one of the high places. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. You can't get more specific, folks. Okay, And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Again, Samuel's very specific in his predictions of what Sam, or Saul is going to experience as he leaves him. This is quite different from someone standing in front of a crowded room of Christians saying, the Lord has told me that somebody here tonight is really struggling with a headache. 
And we see that nonsense going on in the church. I just get a sense that tonight somebody's here and they, they, they're struggling in their marriage. A crowd of people. Somebody's having financial difficulty. The Lord has a word for you. That's what we see today. God help us with these false prophets who meet out the virtues of God to emotionally work up people in the same way that politicians throw a piece of candy to people who've lost their home and livelihood. God help us. We don't need to be part of that nonsense. A true prophet doesn't throw out generalities. They're specific. And their prophecies range from oracles of blessing to oracles of woe. They're not just telling you how wonderful you are and what God wants to do to make you wealthy and God's going to give you greater health and God's going to give you everything your hearts desire. That's what you hear in today's modern prophet. That's not the prophet of God. There were times he came and said, Woe unto you! Who wants to hear that? Back in the Old Testament, man, when the prophet came to town, people had fear and trembling. They didn't know if it was going to be an oracle of woe or blessing. And if it was a blessing, they were like, Whoo, thank you, Lord. And honey, go grab the prophet, tell him we want to take him to lunch today. We're glad he came to town. And if it was an oracle of woe, they found rocks and they picked them up and oftentimes they stoned the prophets of God. These modern prophets, everything they do is to build a bigger crowd of people that follow them. So they're going to tell you what you want to hear. They are coming to you, as the Bible says, with ears that tickle you. This is not of the Lord. Much of what we see today is not of the Lord. If we're honest about it, these guys are not prophets, they're scoundrels. They're charlatans, and they're taking from people, and they're hindering people from true worship of God. Verse 5, Afterward you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. Uh, this is the first mention of a group of prophets, or the sons of the prophets is what they're often referred to I think in the New King James and the King James Bible. And, and this is the first time. And you're going to see a lot of this as we go forward in the, in the storyline of 1 and 2 Samuel and, and get into the kings. Um, uh, the, these young men who were called to be prophets, and they would go to school together to be prophets, and they would follow the prophet of God. Then the Spirit of the Lord. Look at this, verse 6. Here it is. Now, he's already anointed him, right? Right? The anointing's already happened. Now look what he says. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. Listen to me. It wasn't the act of the anointing that caused him to be Spirit-filled. It was obeying what the prophet said to do. And in the process of that, God's going to come upon you mightily. You are going to start prophesying. Now, had Saul ever, remember, Saul didn't even, wasn't even a religious man. He's about to start prophesying. See, that's, what God, that's when you know God's in it. It's something you can't do. Verse 7, It shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. You'll know when you get there what you're supposed to do. These are uncharted waters for Saul. He's never been in a setting around a group of prophets. He doesn't know how to act. He doesn't know what to do. God's going to show him when he gets there. 
Now these prophets were apparently seeking the Lord and worshiping Him at a place, a high place. And so now they're coming down and He's going to see them and they're going to have this experience. In the book of Acts, where the Spirit came upon the 120 believers and they began to speak in tongues, it wasn't gibberish coming out of their mouths. They were actually declaring the works of God in the native languages of the Jews who had gathered. They were marveling that these uneducated men from Galilee and from other remote places are speaking our native tongue, Greek, from Crete, Africa, Ethiopia. They're speaking the languages. They don't know the languages. It was God in the moment giving them what they were supposed to say, and they did it. That's what we're talking about here, obeying God. Verse 6 again, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. Now let's remember that before Saul was chosen to be king, this stuff was foreign, every bit of it. But did that hold God back from choosing Saul? It probably is what qualified Saul to be chosen. Because Saul, early on, would have to trust in, rely upon, adhere to God. He couldn't do it on his own. So this is a good thing. Sometimes some of you are saying, well, there's somebody that's better qualified than me. No, the best qualified is the one who's most desperate for God to move. Because they know they can't do it. The guy that's not qualified is the guy who thinks he can do it. I tell young pastors this all the time. I believe it with all my heart. Your best sermon will never be your best sermon. You can craft that thing and work on it for three weeks and think you've got this thing down and, man, I know exactly what to say. I've got my, I've got my voice inflection. I've got the timing, and I'm going to make this thing a beautiful thing. Boy, am I going to woo and wow the crowd with this sermon. No, you won't. It'll be a mess. Your best is when you go into that pulpit in weakness, fear, and trembling, like the Apostle Paul, who said, I didn't come to you, brothers, with eloquence of speech or with wisdom. I came to you in weakness, fear, and trembling, that you wouldn't see a demonstration of man's ability, but of the Spirit's power. You'll see a man who's nothing but hungering after God and desperate for God to speak through him. And that's what you're going to be moved by, not by me, not by the man. Amen? God, let it, we need more of those kind of people in the pulpits. Amen? Lord, make me that way. Verse 8, And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and, shall, uh, and, and show you what you should do. So you need to do everything I'm telling you, and then the next time I see you, I'll tell you what else to do. I'm not going to give all of it to you now. You need to walk by faith. So, verse 9, Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. Look at that. And all those signs came about on that day. It didn't happen when Samuel was talking with him. It's when he got alone away from Samuel that God began to change Saul's heart. It's a, see, it's the intimacy thing. And when they came to the hill, there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon uh, Saul mightily, so that he prophesied among them. He had never done that before. He didn't have a clue what prophecy meant, probably. Here he is doing it. It came about when all the who knew him previously saw that he prophesied, now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? 
They knew him. Is Saul also among the prophets? And, and man there, a man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So total transformation of a man by the Spirit of God. And maybe this is a good reminder to us that we can't change other people's hearts. God has to do the changing. He just spoke with the greatest man of God of his day, the prophet Samuel. No change took place. Even during the anointing, no change. When did it happen? After he walked away, when God had a hold of his heart. See, changing people is God's business, not ours. Our business is to simply get the word out, live a life that speaks of Jesus and let God do the rest. Amen? It really is a simple message for us. It's not difficult. So Saul went from an unspiritual man to one who became very spiritual, all because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Verse 14, Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. And when we, <laughs> when we saw that they could not be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. See, God's timing, not Saul's timing. There are times where we come into the Scripture and we, boy, God just opens up a nugget of truth to us, and we're like, wow, boy, I needed that. And before we can even let it go from here to here, where we actually have the opportunity to practice it for a few weeks, it's already coming out of here. It went from here, we told everybody else. Instead of here, down the staircase, into the heart, where we could actually allow it to stew like in a crock pot and let God use it to change us. And then after we're walking in it, now, God says, now let's, let's communicate that to others. We, we jump the gun with God. Here, it's a good thing that Saul did not jump the gun. Amen? Didn't tell his uncle. Didn't tell his uncle. His uncle knew, okay, it had to be something big because I know good and well the prophet's not going to talk to you unless there's something going on. And he told him the truth. He said he told us where the donkey, that the donkeys had been found. But he didn't reveal the deeper things that the Lord had revealed. So his uncle uh, probably came back and said, well, why is your hair all oily? <laughs> People are going to press you, you know. When God's doing a work in your life, they want to know exactly what and why and how. Uh, we need to commend Saul here, and we need to walk in the same way with God. Verse 17, thereafter Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said no, but set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans." So here Samuel is again, and he is communicating with the 
Israelites, you, you wanted a king even though you already had the king and you've rejected him. So go ahead and prepare at your homes because you're about to get what you wanted. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Interesting. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken. And Saul the son of Kish was taken. Samuel already knew that Saul was the man that God chose. He's already anointed him. Saul has already had these experiences just as the prophets said they would happen as a confirmation that he's the king. Yet when Samuel went before the people, he didn't say, well, here's our new king. He actually used by lot. We're going we're gonna to cast lots. And when they were finished casting lots, it fell on Saul. That was God's absolute confirmation because it would never would. That'd be like walking into a 7-Eleven with the lottery going on and billions of dollars and you just go in there and man, it's, it's yours. That's a terrible analogy. But anyway, when you think about it, for God to tell the man, you're the guy. But then in order for the people to believe that this is the guy, they did it by lots, which was the common way of trying to discern what God was saying in that day. And that's what they did. They did it by lot. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. So the lot fell to Saul, but where is he? Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself behind the baggage. <laughs> Again, this guy, even with all that God's proven and God's given him confidence to believe in, he's still a broken, humble guy. Can't believe God chose him. He's astonished by it. So they ran and took him from there. And they, when, he, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the, of the people from his shoulder upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Man, they had wanted to say that for hundreds of years. They wanted to be like the other nations that always said, Long live the king. Now they can do it. And it's interesting how Samuel actually um, uh, describes him. He's, you know, he's head and shoulder above everybody else and and in this moment of human image and pageantry, man, he's like, can you believe that this is the guy? Look at this guy. Look how awesome. What's, what's he doing? Samuel is saying, isn't this what you wanted? And they're like, wow, you're right. He's perfect. Boy, is that going to backfire. Amen. Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him all in, among all the people. This is possibly a note of sarcasm on his part. This is what you wanted. This is the outcome that you sought. Isn't it wonderful? Then Samuel, verse 25, told the people the ordinance of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own house. And Saul also went to his house in Gibeah. That's kind of cool. 
they, they never had a king before. They didn't have a palace or a special place to put him. He went back to his house, the king, you know. And, um, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. That's interesting. God didn't just touch Saul. He touched those men around Saul so that they could be valiant men to protect the king. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But Saul, when it says, but he kept silent, it means Saul kept silent. It means Saul heard what they said, but he didn't let it affect him. An insecure man would have reacted differently, not Saul. How could he? God went to such length to make sure he understood that he was God's choice. And so, just, just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, Samuel explained to the people God's guidelines for both the rulers and the subjects, probably using Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Uh, and, and that's back, by the way, back in Deuteronomy is when God first mentioned the king for Israel. So it wasn't, this is not a bad thing that, God, that, 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 that there's a king. It's the timing of it. It's the way the people have asked for it. God wanted the people to have a king. You have to understand that. We said that last week. Jesus was supposed to come through royalty, right? Through the bloodline of David. So there had to be a king. That's part of God's plan. But the timing of that king, uh, we don't know, but it's likely, it's plausible that God's first king should have been David. That was God's choice. Not, not this king, but God gave them what they wanted. You made your bed, now you can sleep in it. And, and yet, here early on, Saul's reaction uh, to these worthless men shows wisdom, shows wisdom. At this point, he really is trusting God. He really is going with God's plan. It's a great power when a man can act as though he were deaf to slander, deaf to unkind words, deaf to un, uh, un, uh, or not, uh, or uh, wrong treatment. Only when we turn to God and focus on what He says can we truly block out all the other voices. So Saul started off really promising. In fact, let me just write these down if you want. Let me give you some examples of how we know Saul started right with God and with the people. First of all, he was chosen and anointed by God. Secondly, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, he was supported by a great man of God in Samuel. Fourthly, he was given gifts appropriate to royalty. Next, he was enthusiastically supported by most of all the nation. Nearly everybody loved him. He had support. Next, he was surrounded by valiant men, men who God also touched. He touched their hearts. And then lastly, wise enough to not regard every doubter or critic as an enemy. So this is a good beginning for King Saul. I'm bringing that out tonight because as time goes, you're going to see this man move from being a vessel that God can use to a vessel that wants to go out and use others. He's going to become prideful. He's going to become arrogant. And he's going to, get, he's going to try to uh, get anybody who stands in his way removed. So this is an interesting chapter, and chapter 11 will take us even further. We're looking forward to that, okay? Uh, let's end with prayer.
Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what we've learned, what we've gleaned from Scripture that we can apply to our own personal lives. Everybody here is called to be a witness. We're all called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And you didn't just call us to something that we cannot do, but you equip us by the Holy Spirit, filling us, anointing us as vessels used for the service of God. Now, Lord, as we go, may we yield to the work of the Spirit in our lives. May we no longer resist that Spirit, but, but yield to it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless each and every one of you.